Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. I you to take your copy of God's Word and find the Old Testament book of Ezra, chapter 7, and just one verse of Scripture today, verse 10, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Thank you, uh, President Aiken, for your kind introduction, overly generous. Kim and I are delighted to be back on the Southeastern campus. We do treasure our friendship with Danny and Charlotte Aiken. Dr. Aiken preached a number of times in the Lakeview pulpit during the years I was pastor. And uh, the day after I announced uh, that I was retiring, which was September 20, uh, 2021, or September 20, 2020, the very next morning I got a phone call from Dr. Aiken and he said, would you like to come and teach at Southeastern Seminary in retirement? And so uh, I was here in November and here again this week and honored and grateful to play some role in helping to train the students here at Southeastern Seminary in gospel ministry. I want to speak to you this morning about the preacher's sacred calling. Every preacher has a sacred calling. And just remind you, if you don't already know this, that preaching is dangerous work, especially to the ego of the preacher. Some years ago when our granddaughter Margaret Ann was visiting, she was age four at the time. I was seated on the front pew. I was about to go up and preach, and we were singing the last song, and I turned over to Margaret Ann, and I said, Now, Margaret Ann, uh, Papa's about to go up and preach, and I want you to listen really, really well to the sermon today. And uh, at uh, the dinner table, I want you to tell me one thing you, you heard me say you learned in the sermon. She said, Yes, sir. So we sat down at the Sunday dinner table and I said, Margaret Ann, what did you learn in the sermon today? What do you remember? And she just thought and thought. She said, Pop, I don't remember anything you said. <laughs> so fast forward to Sunday evening, after church on Sunday evening, and she comes up to me and she says, Papa, I remembered something from the sermon this morning. You said, find chapter two. <laughs> So a few years passed and our granddaughter Vivian was visiting. We were on the front row, very similar kind of circumstance. She was six, they're cousins, not sisters. I said, Vivian, Papa's about to go and, and preach. I want you to listen really, really well and tell me one thing that you remember from the sermon at the uh, dinner table today. She said she would. So when we sat down at the dinner table, I said, now Vivian, do you remember anything from the sermon that?" Papa said today, and she said, you said, please be seated. Well, preaching is uh, dangerous to the preacher's ego, that's for sure. And uh, I've been preaching now for more than 50 years. I've preached more than 6,000 times. And I've learned this, that preaching done God's way is hard work. And Sunday comes every seven days. It just comes and comes and comes. And there is the burden of the Lord of preparing for the Lord's day. Now, Satan seeks to thwart the advance of the church, and he has many different ways to, to seek to do that. Uh, some of his tools in his tool shed are pretty obvious to us. There is the tool of uh, sexual immorality, which is discredited, and uh, many ministers of the gospel who've lost their ministry. There's the the tool of family failure, there is the tool of apostasy or liberalism. But I want to suggest that one of Satan's most effective tools is far more subtle than that, but probably even more effective than those obvious uh, tools that the, the adversary has to thwart the work of the ministry. And I think one of the things that Satan does that uh, 
neutralizes the impact of gospel ministry as he gets the, the pastors off on side streets. Uh, so many pastors see their role as chief executive officer and they, they, they seek to oversee the work of the ministry in their church as if it were a business. Others, I think, are diverted from their effectiveness by becoming chaplains. I'm, I'm all for chaplains, especially military chaplains, but there's a difference between being a chaplain and a pastor. And uh, we need to know what that difference is so that we don't slip into the, to the expectations that so many churches have that they want their pastor to be a, a chaplain and no more. Uh, then there is the danger of being a political activist. That'd be true on both the political left and the political right. Now, I believe we ought to speak biblical justice and call people to repentance, but that is a, a genuine threat to the effectiveness of gospel advance. And in recent years, we've seen the, the danger that comes from so many pastors who see their role as being a life coach. And when they stand in the pulpit, it's not the scriptures they expound, but just some tips about how to do better with your business or your family or your budget. And so all of these dangers and distractions are there. And much of this is good, but remember this, that the good is the enemy of the best. And so the best is for the man of God to take the word of God and stand behind the pulpit, read the scriptures, and declare, thus saith the Lord, and call the people to repentance, faith, and obedience. That is our sacred calling. Now we see this all over the New Testament. I want to look today at just one verse of scripture in uh, the Old Testament book of Ezra chapter 7. Verse 10 is our text, but I want us to just get the context here. Verses 8 and 9. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey in, from Babylon on the first day of the first month. And he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. So, you know, Ezra was the, he was the religious leader, he was the priest, and he collaborated with the political leader, Nehemiah, to bring the people back from Babylon, to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the gates, to reestablish life back in the holy city of Jerusalem. And this is how Ezra devoted his time there in Jerusalem. Look in verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. And I believe in this uh, 10th verse of Ezra chapter 7, we can find a template, if you please, of how a pastor is to conduct his ministry. So there are three axioms here that we find in the life of Ezra that I want to lift up to you this morning as we think about the ministry of preaching and the preacher. First is the preacher is called to study God's Word. That is our sacred calling to study the Word of God. We read in verse 10, Ezra devoted himself to the study of the law of God. He set his heart on this ministry. He pursued diligently the study and understanding of the Word of God. And I believe what we have here in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 is an Old Testament pattern for what we see expressed in Acts chapter 6 where there was the dispute that arose between the widows there in the church in Jerusalem. And uh, the controversy was settled by the church choosing seven men to take care of the widows so that the apostles, which I believe would be a parallel for our modern day pastors, the apostles said that we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. It wasn't that the apostles were too good to help widows, but they knew that they had a different calling, a higher calling. And if they didn't fulfill the ministry of prayer and the word that the church would suffer. And so Ezra set the pattern there for those early Jerusalem apostles. I believe Ezra set the pattern for the apostle Paul. When Paul uh, was writing his final letter to Timothy, Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, he said, Preach the word, be prepared, in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and exhort with great patience. 
And so the preacher is to preach the word, and in order to preach the word effectively, he must be prepared. He must be prepared in season and out of season. He must be prepared when he has plenty of time to prepare, and he must be prepared when his time is, 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 is being crunched from all sides. But a call to preach is a call to prepare. And it is inexcusable for the man of God, for the pastor, to stand in the pulpit unprepared. I would never, no, never seek to stand up and to preach the Word of God if I had not made adequate preparation. Now, let me hasten to say, if that sounds arrogant to you, I have never stood to preach a single time when I didn't wish I had another day to make it better or another hour to make it better. But it's not for lack of preparation on my part. Joseph Parker was a famous preacher in 19th century London. And uh, he, was, uh, he was asked about his preaching ministry. And uh, he said, there's no shortcut to it. He said, and I quote, if I had talked all the week, I would not have preached on Sunday. That is all. Mystery there is none. I have made my preaching work my delight, the very festival of my soul. And so the preaching of God's word is primary. Therefore, study is primary. Now, during the years I've been pastor, all these just over 50 years now, uh, my schedule has been Tuesday morning till noon. I'm in the study. Wednesday morning till noon, I'm in the study. Thursday morning till noon, I'm in the study. And depending on if I have that one sermon on Sunday or a Sunday night sermon as well, I'm in the study on uh, Saturday from about, about six to eight hours. And uh, that means sometimes some things have to be neglected. Uh, I believe a pastor ought to return his phone calls from members the day that you receive them. And that was always my ambition. At the end of the day, I would just go in at 5 o'clock and start returning phone calls. Uh, people who are not members, I'll get to you when I get to you. I got to guard my sheep, and I'll talk to you when, it's, when I get time. But sometimes I have, I have neglected to return a phone call uh, as quickly as somebody might want me to, or to answer a a letter as quickly as someone might want me to so that I might have the time to be prepared for Sunday's message. And I would sit at my study desk and we need to just lash ourselves to our study desk chair and just stay there and work in the text. Diagram the text, exegete the text, think about the text, pray over the text, look at the text, whatever your methods are to, to, to understand the passage of scripture. But I would sit at my study desk and, and sometimes I just think to myself, how good is this? They pay me to read the Bible. I must have the best job in Auburn, Alabama. And uh, we need to see our ministry in that light. The Bible is an inexhaustible resource for preaching. We, we never run out of uh, material if we preach from the word of God. Regarding the minister's study, Owen Strayan said, and I quote, the minister's study is where the church's health is decided. If the minister is weak in the study, he will be a mouse in the pulpit. If the minister is strong in the study, he will be a lion in the pulpit. We want lions, not mice, in our pulpits. And that means we must discipline ourselves to say no to a multitude of good opportunities to be visible perhaps in the community or some uh, denominational meeting so that we can closet ourselves with God, with his holy word, so that when we, Sunday comes and we stand up, we have a fresh word from God. In... Uh, March of 1979, I was 30 years old, I was pastor of a rural church in South Alabama, and the pastor search committee from Lakeview Baptist Church came to hear me preach a second time. They sat down in the den of the 
parsonage there. And we had our first interview. And uh, I didn't know who they were. There were eight or 10 people there. I didn't know that every one of them was either a professor or administrator at Auburn University. And uh, I said, I want you to ask me anything you want to ask me. But before you ask the first question, I need to say something to you, which may terminate this interview before it gets started. I said, it is my ambition to know the Bible better than anybody in the church. And uh, I said, if you're looking for someone to stand in the pulpit to hold his own with a the academic community, the philosophers and the educators and the scientists and the engineers, I said, I, I can't do that. But if you want a pastor who will come to the pulpit Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, having studied God's word and prayed over God's word with a fresh word from God to feed the people of God, then let's talk. And it's like the lights went on in their eyes and they started doing this. And they said, that's what we've not had for the last five and a half years. We desperately need that and want that. God's people need to hear from God. And God has disclosed his heart and mind to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. We have the book of life. And we must be careful students of these scriptures So we read about Ezra here in Ezra chapter 7 that he devoted himself to the study of the law of the Lord. That is the preacher's sacred calling. But secondly, I want you to see in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 that Ezra devoted himself to the observance or the obedience of the law of the Lord. The preacher is called not only to study God's word, But the preacher is called to obey God's word. Now, this is a clear-cut call to personal holiness. We read in the Old Testament, we read in the New Testament, the Lord says, be holy as I, the Lord, am holy. And how are we to be holy? By observing, by obeying the commands of God set forth in Holy Scripture. This is not just a book to tickle our intellectual fancy. This is a book in which we submit to the clear precepts and teaching so that we might walk in humility and holiness with God. James, a half-brother of our Lord Jesus, said, Do not merely listen to the word. Do what it says. The Apostle Paul said, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. The pastor, the preacher, must live a life above reproach. And I said to our people there at Lakeview Church in Auburn across these years, the greatest gift that I have to give to you is my personal holiness. Robert Murray McShane was a pastor in Dundee, Scotland, died at age 29, but left a great legacy for the church. He was known for his holiness. And he wrote a friend these words. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. I think those last two sentences bear repeating. It is not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And I learned from Robert Murray McShane to pray what he prayed. God, make me as holy as a redeemed sinner can be made. Pastors, future pastors, your your greatest contribution is not your winsome personality, nor is it your extraordinary people skills. It's not even your theological knowledge, as important as that is, or your leadership ability. But it is your and my personal holiness. 
God works through holy men of God. Some years ago, probably 25 or 30 years ago, I was having a pity party one day. I don't recommend those, but I've had a few through the years, and I remember this one well. I made the mistake of comparing myself with some of my fellow pastors in the Auburn, Opelika area where I served. I said to the Lord one day, Lord, why did you give George Matheson? George was a Methodist pastor in our city. Why did you give George Matheson all those incredible people skills and leave me out? And then I said, Lord, it's not fair. You, you, you gave Walter Albritton. He's another Methodist minister in our city who wrote a weekly column for the paper. And uh, you said, you made, you made Walter Albritton a very gifted writer, and I, yeah, I can hardly put two sentences together. It's not fair. Just feeling sorry for myself. And then I said, then there's Bob Baggett of the First Baptist Church uh, in Opelika. I said, he's just such a natural wit. And, and, you know, he just has people laughing. And then there's my friend Peter Dole, who, by the way, just turned 90, Presbyterian pastor, studied with Bard in Switzerland, and he's got this massive intellect. And I said, uh, why did you give Peter that and not give me that kind of a intellectual firepower? I just grumbling. And God spoke to me in my spirit, louder than it was audible. And God said, you can be holy. We can all be holy. Uh, you may not be able to parse your verbs and decline your nouns ever as good as your professors do, but you can be holy. Uh, you may not have the eloquence of a John Piper or a David Platt, but you can be holy. We can all be holy. It's just a matter of humbling ourselves before God, repenting of our sins daily, seeking the fullness of the Holy Spirit to empower us to walk in holiness. I remember from high school days reading, uh, not that I enjoyed reading the Canterbury Tales, I'm embarrassed to say, but I do remember uh, Chaucer put these words in the mouth of the minister. If the gold rusts, what will the iron do? And all of our people are called to holiness, but we must set the pace for them. There ought not to be any shadow or question about our thought life, our relationships, our handling of money, uh, the handling of the text of Scripture, because we are to reflect God's character, and God is holy. The seraphs cried out, Isaiah chapter 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we're to be a holy people. We do that by obeying the law of the Lord. So we see in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 that first of all Ezra devoted himself to the study of the law. The preacher's call to study God's word. And then he deserved, committed himself to the observance of the law of the Lord. We're to walk in holiness, obedience to God's commands. And then third we see here. Uh, Ezra devoted himself to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. The preacher is called to study God's word, obey God's word, and then to proclaim God's word. Now hold your place in Ezra chapter 7 and find Nehemiah chapter 8. It's not very far away, just a few pages. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 3. Now I said earlier, Ezra and Nehemiah were colleagues in seeking to restore the people of God to Jerusalem. Ezra was the priest, Nehemiah was the political leader. And we read uh, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, And all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the, law, the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded uh, for Israel. And on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly which is made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. So I assume that would be, uh, you know, maybe adolescents or maybe older children. Verse 3, he, Ezra, read it aloud from daybreak to noon. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Well, that's, that's a long sermon right there, from daybreak till noon. Maybe they had intermission, or maybe they, you know, bring a snack lunch with you. So if you get hungry, you can have a little bite to eat while uh, Ezra is t 
teaching the law of God. But notice he read it aloud, and uh, then he gave the, the sense of it so that the people could understand. This is what the pastor is called to do. The preacher is to expound the word of God to the people of God. That's why Paul said, preach the word. Be prepared in season, out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience. So we have this book to preach from, and we really have nothing else to preach from, nor do we need anything else. So from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the preacher is to preach the Word of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, line upon line, precept upon precept, and just preach the Word of God. And when we preach the Word of God, we are preaching the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Now, we all know that in the New T Old Testament, he's there in shadows and types and prophecies. And in the New Testament, he's more fully revealed in his, uh, in his incarnation. But when we preach the Bible, we're preaching Jesus. We all know that the Bible is the word of God written and Jesus is the word of God incarnate. So, I believe if you could take the Bible and turn the Bible into a person, you would have the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe if you could take the Lord Jesus Christ and turn him into a book, you'd have the Holy Bible. This is, this is our message right here. It's the Word of God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we do not preach ourselves or our opinions, but we preach Christ. And the preacher's like the donkey that carried Jesus into Jerusalem on, on Passion Week. And they were crying out, Hosanna. They weren't praising the donkey. They were praising the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not to preach for the adulation and, and uh, acclaim of men. We're to preach for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must guard against just trying to entertain people. The great Spurgeon said about entertainment in the pulpit, quote, I do not look for any other means of converting men beyond the simple preaching of the gospel and the opening of men's ears to hear it. The moment the church of God shall despise the pulpit, God will despise her. It has been through the ministry that the Lord has always been pleased to revive and bless his church. Now, there's some who would say to us, we've got to entertain people, we're going to fill the pews. Listen, it is not the preacher's responsibility to fill the pews. It is the preacher's responsibility to fill the pulpit. And when the preacher fills the pulpit with the, with the word of the living God, the pews will take care of themselves. Some years ago, one of our members now with the Lord in heaven came to see me. And she said to me, Pastor, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. I come to church and I, sometimes I go away and I don't feel good. And she said, the church I was in, when I would leave, I would always go away feeling good and uplifted. And sometimes I, I go away after hearing you preach and I don't feel uplifted. And I, and I said to her, well, Carolyn, my task is not to make you feel good. My task is to preach the Bible. And... Uh, if you go away feeling convicted, that's the work of the Holy Spirit that you need to repent on that particular matter. And if you go away happy, that's the, that's the affirmation of the Holy Spirit that you're walking with the Lord. The preacher's job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And so our job is not to try to fill the pews. We just need to fill that pulpit. We should be less concerned with making our churches full of people and more concerned about making our people full of the spirit of the living God. So how shall we preach? Well, my experience is to preach, for the most part, systematically through books of the Bible. Now, I don't think that's the only way to preach, nor is that the only way I've preached. But if you went back and analyzed those thousands of sermons I preached at Lakeview Baptist Church across the years, most of them would be systematically preaching through some book of the Bible. I'd been a pastor 10 months. I was 22 years of age, and I went to the School of the Prophets, the very first ever School of the Prophets at the First Baptist Church of Dallas. And Dr. Chris Wells said, 
just preach your way through the Bible. You know, he did that. Well, he had to take some pretty big chunks because I couldn't pull it off because I, I, I take a paragraph a Sunday. You know, maybe five verses, maybe eight, maybe ten, sometimes more, sometimes less. But uh, So my goal was to be like W.A. Crystal, to preach the, the entire Bible. Now, not to start with Genesis and work straight through, but just this book and that book, back and forth, Old and New Testaments. And uh, when I was in my early 40s, it dawned on me, I'm not going to live long enough to preach the whole Bible the way, I, the way I do it. So then my goal became to preach through all the books of the New Testament and as many books of the Old Testament as I could. And when I came to retirement, I'd preach through 27, excuse me, 25 of the 27 New Testament books and about eight or, excuse me, about 10 or 11 Old Testament books. Uh, I could live several lifetimes and never exhaust the riches that are found in the pages of Holy Scripture. So my counsel to young preachers is preach the Bible, start with chapter 1, verse 1, and work your way through the text. And, but then there's also verse with verse. That can be dangerous. Uh, last spring, I did 14 sermons from the book of Proverbs. It's pretty challenging to preach Proverbs verse by verse by verse. So I did that thematically. Here are the verses on integrity. Here are the verses on speech. Here are the verses on sex. Here are the verses on money. Uh, that's a legitimate way to teach the Word of God as well. And then there's just verse, like Esther 7.10, or Genesis 1.1, or John 3.16, or Joshua 1.8. They're just some verses that Stand alone, preach them as they are. But the important thing to remember is whether it's verse by verse or verse with verse or just verse is the text determines the sermon. And when I was teaching, preaching for 21 years as an adjunctive faculty member at our partnership, we have a Southern, as Dr. Aiken mentioned, I would say to those interns, I'd say, if I wake you up in the middle of the night and tell me one thing you know about preaching, I want you, here's what I want to hear from you. The text determines the sermon. The text determines the sermon. The text determines the sermon. So when we preach the Bible, the preacher learns. I, I knew in my, I knew from my studies in theology about the sovereignty of God, but it's only when I preached my way through the prophecy of Daniel that I really came to understand our sovereign God. I, I knew about the doctrine of election from studies in class, but it's only when I worked my way through John's gospel that I saw in a very real and deep way the doctrine of God's electing us in salvation. It's when I was working my way through Romans the first time, and I did preach Romans twice. When I was working through my way through Romans the first time, I saw in a, in a way I'd never seen before the exceeding sinfulness of the human heart. It was working my way through Galatians that I saw the greatness of God's grace and our justification by faith in Christ. The preacher learns, that God's people learn. And uh, as God's people hear the word of God, they're being washed in the word Sunday by Sunday, week after week, year after year, decade after decade. Furthermore, you know where you're going. I never had to wonder where I was going. I would always chart all this stuff out in advance. And when I would come in on Tuesday morning and Monday was the day given over to staff and given over to counseling. When I would come in first thing on Tuesday morning, I didn't have to have to spend all morning trying to find a text for Sunday. I go exactly to where I left off the, the, the Sunday before and started working in the text so that the preacher doesn't waste time. And when you preach systematically in this way, you, you have balance in your preaching. Have you ever noticed there's not a, necessarily a, a book in the New Testament on, say, on uh, on marriage and family and one on spiritual warfare and, and one on uh, the Holy Spirit, but it's all woven together. Now, most of us preachers, we have our, our hobby horses, don't we? Uh, just left to myself, probably about 70% of my sermons would be missionary sermons, just left to myself. That's just where my heart is. That's where my passion is. And uh, this is a missionary book. You can find them <laughs> everywhere if you don't have eyes to see. But uh, there's balance here. So let's say you're working your way through Ephesians. You have the first three chapters are doctrinal, the last three chapters are practical, and, 
in nature, and, and you have, you know, you have the prayers there in chapters one and three. You have uh, a great chapter two where you have uh, the, you know, Paul's uh, description of uh, we're dead in, in our sins and we've been made alive in Christ. So you have evangelistic text there. Uh, you go to chapter four, you have that passages there on, on the church and, and unity and, and uh, God's gifted leaders of the church. And you work your way to chapter five and you, the Christian life and, and marriage. And you get to chapter six and you have family uh, parenting and spiritual warfare. So you have, you have God's balance. The Spirit of God has done that. And, and you, 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 you give people a balanced diet of the Word of God as opposed to just selectively deciding every week, well, what am I going to do this week? And then, of course, if you do this, you have to deal with the unpopular text. Now, my favorite book to preach through was, was Luke. I spent three and a half years in Luke. Somebody might say, you might think, well, wow, that's a long time to spend in one book. Don't your people get tired of that? I don't know. I don't, nobody said they were tired, but if they did, I already had my answer prepared. Then you must be tired of Jesus because it's all about Jesus. Nobody ever told me they were tired, so I never got to use that until right now. So uh, it is all about Jesus. And Jesus has some very uncomfortable and radical statements. You just take Luke chapter 16. I had three sermons on Luke chapter 16. The first, the first part of that passage is Jesus saying some pretty severe things about materialism, countercultural. And then the middle part of that, tech, that chapter is Jesus, Jesus teaching on divorce and remarriage. It's countercultural. And then the last part of it is about hell. So if you're going to be seeker sensitive and uh, some good old boy walks in on you in Luke chapter 16 and comes three weeks in a row, he might not come back. But our, as I said, our job is not to tickle their ears. Our job is to preach truth to them. And then there's the matter of how long shall we preach? When I was a student at Southwestern Seminary and I owe so much to my preaching professor I learned how to study the text inductively from him. But he said, preach 20 minutes. Now this is almost 50 years ago now. He said, people's attention spans are such, they, they can't assimilate more than 20 minutes. Well, I confess to you, I didn't, I didn't uh, listen to that. I'm sure it was my youthful arrogance, but I decided if I preach 40 minutes instead of 20 minutes, I can teach twice as much truth in my lifetime. Some years ago, Kim and I were in London. You have lots of friends in London. Done some pulpit exchanges with pastors there through the years. and We were staying with our friends Alan and Allison Evans. He had spent a year on our staff as an intern. And uh, he said to me, he said, uh, how would you like to go to a football game on Saturday? You know, that's soccer. I said, sure. So early Saturday morning, Alan and I got in his car and we headed northeast to Liverpool where his team, Everton, was playing Liverpool. And along the way, about an hour south of Liverpool, we stopped in the little stereotypical English village of Moberly, where, his, where he had been, where he had grown up, gone to school, gone to church. His mom and dad still lived there. Picked up his father, and the three of us drove on in to the ball, to the soccer match. And, and when we were coming back to take Mr. Evans back home, we were coming through the the village square there, and there was a a cricket match taking place on the village green. And Alan said, would you like to see a little cricket? And I said, sure. So we pulled in and got out. And while we were there watching the cricket match for a few minutes, uh, I was introduced to Alan's childhood pastor. He was now in his late 80s. And he'd been Alan's pastor for 36 years. The pastor of this little Anglican church for 36 years. Had a 
pleasant chat with this man. And as we were driving from the Village Green back to Mr. Evans' home, one of them, I don't remember which one, said to me, uh, I think it was Mr. Evans, uh, he was our, this man was our pastor for 36 years, and I never heard him preach more than five minutes. I thought, why bother? Why bother to get up and shave and wash your hair and take a bath and put on your Sunday go to meeting clothes for five minutes? Think I'll just stay home. Now, I believe you can go too long, but I believe as long as we're moving in a straight line, we're clear. We've got to keep going. And then one final question I want to ask and answer is how how shall we preach? And for years and years and years, before I preach on anywhere, I asked the Lord to help me to preach with authority, with clarity, and with passion. Authority, clarity, and passion. Now, if we preach the Bible, we preach with authority. This is an authoritative book. This is the book of God. And when we preach the Word of God in the anointing of the Spirit of God, there is authority. And then there's the authority of a holy life. If you preach the authoritative Word of God, but your life doesn't match what you're preaching, there's no authority there. You'll be viewed for what you are, a hypocrite. Your professor, Jim Shaddix, in his excellent book, The Passion Driven Sermon, said about authority, and I want to read this to you. We must remember that the role of the pastoral preacher is to exalt God by preaching the Word of God with the highest degree of integrity. The highest degree of integrity comes only with the highest degree of authority. And the only real authoritative preaching is biblical exposition where the preacher and the listeners are in submission to the primary meaning of each text. That's where we find God's stuff, not the good stuff. And I might say parenthetically here, there's a big difference between the good news and good advice. Shaddix continues, when the preacher allows the text to be preeminent, people are sure to be getting God's stuff. And when they, and when they get God's stuff, God receives the glory. And so we preach with authority. We come as one with authority. Then I ask God to help me preach with clarity. I want to be understood. Nothing to be gained if the Congregation doesn't know what we're talking about. And I'm not talking about having an anemic theology. Our, our preaching ought to have a robust theology to it, but it can be clear. And I'm, I may get myself in trouble here with the president. I don't think so, but uh, maybe some of you might not appreciate this. But the pulpit is not a place for academic discourse. There is a place for that. And I love to, to dialogue and debate academic theological issues but when the man of God stands behind the, the, the desk of God it ought to be thus saith the Lord and, and all of the different views we can lay out in some other setting maybe in our Bible study classes there needs to be clarity in what we say again I want to quote from uh, your own faculty here this is a from uh, Danny Aiken and Scott Pace's book, Pastoral Theology, a book I commend to your reading. Faithful proclamation means we must preach with clarity. One of the most challenging aspects of expositional preaching involves explaining the truth of God's Word in a way that people can understand. This is not an indictment of their spiritual maturity or intellectual capacity, but rather of our sermon content and delivery. Sometimes listeners' confusion results from our attempts to impress them with what we know or from our own lack of understanding from our own blurry thinking. This ends up confirming the famous preaching maxim. A mist in the pulpit will be a fog in the pew. Now, before I finish this quote, I want to say, the first time I was working through Romans, and I worked all week in Romans chapter 7. 
I just couldn't get my mind around Romans chapter 7. I finally came to the place late on Saturday night where I said, I think I understand it for myself, but I don't believe I understand Romans 7 well enough to explain it tomorrow morning to, the, to my church family. So I came in on Sunday morning and I said, I know you're planning, expecting to hear me preach from Romans 7 because I left off last week in Romans 6. But I said, it's not for lack of effort this week. I've studied hard this week, but I need another week before I can make it clear. And I said, I'm going to preach a sermon you've heard me preach some years ago. And did. And the next week I did Romans 7. So a mess in the full pit will be a fog in the pew. While true understanding and belief only depend on the Holy Spirit, they say, our preaching should not make his job any more difficult than necessary. Putting the cookies on the bottom shelf does not dumb down the truth. Instead, it makes it accessible and invites people to listen. Like Paul, our passion to preach must be coupled with a desire to make it clear. Here they are quoting from Colossians 4. Make it clear, which is how we ought to speak. And so we want to be clear in our preaching. Uh, when people leave the service, they ought to not walk away scratching their head, thinking, oh, what's the preacher trying to, what was he trying to get across today? Let them be mad, let them be glad, let them be sad, but never let them be confused. Augustine said, a wooden key is not so beautiful as a golden one, but if it can open the door when the golden one cannot, it is far more useful. He's a pretty smart fellow himself. The great reformer Luther said, no one can be a good preacher to the people who is not willing to preach in a manner that seems childish and vulgar to some. He went on to say on another occasion when I preach, I don't pay attention to the doctors or the magistrates. And I have over 40 of those in my congregation. I have all my eyes on the servant maids and the children. And if the learned men are not well pleased with what they hear, well, the door's open. Now, there's a man of courage. So make it clear. Don't let them leave confused. Authority, clarity, passion. Believe what you say. Now, passion doesn't mean you have to get all worked up and you're, you know, moving your arms or jumping up and down or pacing back and forth. And when I was a young preacher, I could do all that. I'm just too old. You know, I, Spurgeon would pray, coming up the steps, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And when I walked the pulpit steps, I prayed, don't let me trip. Don't let me trip. Don't let me trip. Don't let me trip. But at 73, I still got some fire in my bones. I still feel it. And we ought to use good grammar and diction. But far more important than having good grammar and diction is to have the fire of God in your heart so that people know that what you're talking about, what you're preaching about, you really believe. For myself, I'd rather hear a preacher say, I done seen it, when he's actually seen something, than to say, I have seen when he ain't seen nothing. God give us passion. Believe what we say and say it boldly. I want to read you a portion of a letter that I extracted from Heart Christ, a, a journal published by Life Action Ministries, addressed to pastors, uh, written by someone named Kenny, no last name. The other day I heard a pastor, not my pastor, preach a lifeless, passionless, pointless sermon with no power and no fire. I'm not referring to animated aerobic exercise class preaching. And then he says in parentheses, Vance Havner, a great man of God, preached with power and passion and fire. And yet he was not animated, but monotone and motionless in his preaching style. And I'm old enough to remember hearing Vance Havner preach, and that's a good description of Vance Havner. The message I heard the other day was a waste of my time, and that provokes me to say the following to preachers. So this is obviously a layman. We are thirsty and we are hungry. We are hurting and we need help. We need the fire of God. We need the power of God. And preacher, we need you. You have a special calling on your life, and God has chosen you to be his voice. 
What we need is for our preachers to have the fire of God. What we need is for our preachers to have the power of God. What we need is for our preachers to have passion for the messages that are proclaimed. What we need is for our preachers to feed us from the written word of God and then point us to the living word of God. What we need is for our preachers to be consumed by fire from heaven so that we ourselves may join you in being consumed by God. What we need is for you preachers to be consumed by their passion for the word of God. Please help us, preachers. We know that we have personal responsibility for our own walk with God, but we need help. We are weak, we are frail, we are forgetful. We need to hear from heaven. We don't need to hear about fishing trips or cruises and sermons. We don't need more covered dish suppers at church. We don't need to hear about the local football team and our messages that are preached. We need to, don't need to hear of accomplishments and awards and degrees. What we want to hear is that you have been approved by God to proclaim his word. We are perishing in the pews, and we perish because there's little or no vision of God in some of our pulpits. We are tired of hearing Proverbs 29, 18, misinterpreted and applied to long-range planning. We, the people, are perishing because there is no vision of God. Rise up. Stand up. And don't settle for mediocrity. Don't settle for less. Get all that you can get from God and give it to us. And then go back and get some more. Pursue God with passion. Don't go into the pulpit until you have a message from Him to proclaim to us. Don't preach until you know that you are right with God. And don't go into the pulpit until you know that you are anointed by God and have the fire of God. Sincerely, Kenny. P.S. It has been said where there is smoke, there is fire. Sadly, though, smoke can be an indication that the fire has gone out. God, our Father, we thank you for this holy word, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, the book of life, salvation, the book of God, the book of heaven, a perfect treasure of divine instruction, truth, your truth, eternal truth, that shows us the way home to the Father's household. And Father, I pray for myself and I pray for this seminary community, every administrator, faculty member, student, staff, that you would anoint them as they study your word. These young men who are going out to fill the pulpits of our churches, Lord, would preach with authority, all the authority of God, with passion and clarity for the conversion of sinners, for the sending out of missionaries to the nations, for the edification of the church, for the glory of King Jesus until he comes. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.com. Edu.